What a great morning it's been so far, right? What an amazing day. I, I was like halfway expecting. I didn't hear it, but I was told there was going to be a cowbell this morning. Somebody came ready to worship Jesus, and they were going to have a cowbell. But I, I heard you worshiping. I didn't hear a cowbell, but I did hear a lot of people worshiping. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're with us, whether you're here in the building or whether you're worshiping online. If you're worshiping online, we'd love for you to come and worship with us in the building as well. I wanted to say a big howdy to those that are college students that are back into town. I know we've got kids that are here, or students I should say, not kids, students that are here uh, that go to A&M and to Rellis and to Blinn. And so we're thrilled that you're here. And I want to let you know, if you don't already know this, we are having a lunch for our college students after the service. And so when the service is dismissed, uh, you can go that way. There's a building out back called the Student Center, and that's where lunch is going to be. And uh, we, if you don't know where to go, we'll point you in that direction. And then others of you, maybe you are considering church membership, and you're not a member, and this morning the Lord's just kind of doing some cool things, and you're like, I need to be a part of this church. We have slots available for our um, new member class as well. That will be happening after the service, whether you've registered or not. I don't know what that was, but it'll be wonderful, all right? And so when we dismiss, you can make your way to the cafe and head that direction. Uh, we are, as a church family, walking through the book of Acts, and we have kind of done so through the course of the year with a slight break during the summer months, but we're back to Acts now, and hopefully when you came in, you were able to pick up a worship guide, and on the back side, there's some places where you can take some notes, and you'll see where we're at this week, and you'll see where we're going to be next week at the very bottom of the page. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open that up. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair under you or near you or around you. Feel free to grab one of those, use that. And then you can uh, take that home with you if you need a Bible or you know someone that might need a Bible. We'd like to give that to you this morning. Over the last three weeks in the book of Acts, we have been walking through the life and ministry and death of Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Jesus. And we read his story in Acts chapter 6 and especially in chapter 7. The whole chapter is about him and his death for his trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He was faithful to the end. He lived out his faith even as he was dying. And so we're challenged to live out our faith as well. And we're going to pick up the story in, in Acts chapter 8. If you're not familiar with the Bible, go to the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you can hit the book of Acts. Last week we kind of finished on a sad note. It, it was sad because Stephen was martyred. He was the first man or person recorded in the book of Acts that is killed for his faith. Not because he was guilty of anything other than loving Jesus, and he was martyred for his faith. And that was the ending point of chapter 7. And then now, as we pick up the story in chapter 8, we see that there's still more sad things that are developing, and the situation got worse for all of the Christians. However, I want us to see this morning that in the midst of it all, the Holy Spirit of God was alive, active, and well, and triumphing, triumphing if that's a word. I, I want to put on the screen five things that you will see in Acts chapter 8. So before we read chapter 8, I want you to see them on the screen, um, what those are, and they should, there they are, a right, good deal. So if you want to jot those down on your sermon notes, you can, because I want you to see the pattern of these things repeating themselves <clears throat> and displaying themselves through the text as we read it. So as you can see on the screen, first and foremost, we see that God's 
people, his everyday people. It's not the apostles that we read about really in this text. His everyday people were being scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And there's a reason why that matters. We'll look at that in just a moment. So we see that they scatter across out of Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria. And we see that as they do that, they preach the word of God along the way. As they went, as they went through life, as they scattered abroad, they began to preach the gospel to everyone they saw. And along the way, we see that they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not their own strength, it's not their own intellect, it's not their own power, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through them. And then as he's working through them, then we see that they witness the works and the fruit of their labor. They see the Holy Spirit at work within the people that they are ministering to. And then we see that they are trusting God and his spirit along the way. So as we walk through this text this morning, you're going to see this kind of repeat itself. And um, if you don't have a chance to jot that all down, uh, we're going to leave it on the screen for just a second, and then I can put it on the uh, Facebook page this uh, afternoon as well. As you're jotting that down, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to pick up the story of the early church up until this point Everything we've read in chapters 1 through 7, which is a full one-fourth of the book, entirely has happened in the city of Jerusalem. It's not until chapter 8 that the story of the gospel is recorded as having left Jerusalem, not like to not come back, but it has left out of Jerusalem and gone to the rest of the world, to Judea and Samaria. And so this is a very monumental moment as the gospel is being spread around the world. So I want us to look, Acts chapter 8. Verses 1 through 25. We pick up the story as it finishes from last week where Stephen was murdered for his faith and there's a guy by the name of Saul. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, it's the guy that we end up knowing as Paul. But at this point, he's Saul and he's persecuting the church. And it says that Saul is there approving of Stephen's execution. And then it says, and there arose on that very day a great persecution, which is the first time the word persecution appears in the book of Acts. It says there's a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and because of that, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, the the 12, the 11 that were with Jesus, and then the 12 that they nominated when Judas died, and the 12 apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, but the rest scattered. Verse 2, it says that devout men, he reminds us of what day it is, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but, and here's Saul again, Saul was ravaging, such a strong word, ravaging the church. Saul was entering house after house, and he dragged off men, he dragged off women, and committed them and took them to prison. And perhaps you remember in chapter 9, he'll end up going to Damascus to try to do the same thing. Now those, in verse 4, now those who were scattered They went about preaching the word as they were going to Judea and Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord, we've seen that word over and over again in the book of Acts. They're together, they're listening, they're intent. With one accord, the crowds paid attention to what was being said by Philip as he preached. And then also when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. And here are the signs in verse 7. Can you imagine if you were there that day? For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Side note, God heals however he wants to, but God is just as much a healer today as he was back then. 
I don't know whether you've experienced in your own life or not, but healing is a real thing. God uses medical profession to pull it off sometimes, and he uses not medical profession sometimes to pull it off. God is a God of healing and deliverance. Verse 8, because of all of that, the gospel was preached, miracles were done. Because of that, verse 8, there was much joy in the city. Don't miss that. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. We'll talk about that in a moment. What is it meant by magic? Here's a side note. It's not some dude pulling a rabbit out of a hat, okay? But he's doing magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So they're looking at the past. Before Philip's preaching, this is what's going on. And they're saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now we come back to the present day where Philip's preaching Verse 11, and they, oh no, sorry, we will in verse 12. Verse 11, they paid attention to Simon because of a, uh, for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now to the present day, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, just like we did today, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. But look what he's doing. It says he sees the signs and great miracles performed, and he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them two of the apostles, Peter and John. We've read about them quite a bit in the first part of Acts. They came down, Peter and John did, and prayed for them, the people in Samaria, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why is that? It says they had not yet, he had not yet fallen on any of the Samaritans yet. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Listen to this. Here's what he said. Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said sharply to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Hopefully, you've seen kind of the patterns that I alluded to a moment ago. On this day, the day of Stephen's death, an intense or a great persecution arose against the Jerusalem church. We had seen them get arrested, we had seen them get threatened, we would seen them get flogged, we would seen one individual martyred, and now the entire, it appears, Jerusalem church is being persecuted for their faith. And it's not some light persecution, it's an intense, great persecution. You saw with Saul's explanation, it said that he was ravaging the church. He was trying to destroy it, he was trying to stamp it out and take no prisoners, well actually he was taking prisoners and putting them in jail. But it says that the church was scattered. Look at verse 1 and verse 4. It says scattered. Same Greek word in both places. It says that they were scattered, which means to disperse in different directions. And it's an aspect of it intentionally going in different directions. 
And it says that they went to Judea and they went to Samaria. And you may be wondering, where, what is the deal with Samaria and, and Judea? I wanted to show you a map so you can kind of picture what's going on in, in this situation. You can see the places that are circled and marked in red, at least I think it's red. Judea, Jerusalem, both are circled, and then Samaria is in a solid color there. Just leave the map up for a few moments. And you can see that it quotes on the side from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he's got all of his followers there, about 120 or so of them, and he says, hey guys, I'm going to heaven, and as I go to heaven, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he'll come on you with power, and when he does, you'll be my witnesses in what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and depending on your translation, the uttermost parts of the world, or the ends of the earth, however it may be phrased. So in this picture, you can see three of the areas that he mentions. The story begins in Jerusalem, which is circled there. Judea is not just in that location, but maybe you see like a faint line that's just under Gaza and above Beersheba. And that's kind of the southern part of Judea, across to the Dead Sea, and across to uh, the Jordan River, and then up to Samaria. That whole section or region is referred to as Judea, which would be the southern kingdom, if you know much about the Old Testament, uh, of, of Judah. And then the northern kingdom would, for the most part, be Samaria and Galilee up there, and that would be where the northern kingdom was. All right, so Samaria is a region above them. And maybe you know a little bit about Samaria. Do you remember much about Samaria in the New Testament? The Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along, right? Like you see on the map, you maybe can't tell it, but there's the Jordan River that runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So there's the Jordan River, which borders Samaria. So the people from Jerusalem or Judea, they didn't want to go to Samaria. They didn't want to see those people. They saw them as losers. They saw them as despised. They saw them as half-breeds. There's a whole thing of just negative stuff in their history. They despised them. And so instead of going straight up to get to Galilee, which they liked, uh, they would go across the Jordan River, that would be before a bridge, of course, go across the Jordan River, so they go through Perea and up to Decapolis, and then across the river again to get to Galilee, because they would do anything to avoid that side of town. Do you know that in our lives at all? Like, is there a part of town or a part of the, the country that you may want to avoid? Like, anywhere but Arkansas. Like, I don't, I don't know if I have any Arkans, Ark, Ark, Arkansans in here or not. Ashley and I, when we moved to Shreveport, and I don't know if you've been to Shreveport, if you know much about the city, uh, unfortunately, we have great friends there. We loved our time in Shreveport, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of racial tension uh, throughout the last 50, 60 years in Shreveport, probably longer than that. And I remember when we first moved there, we lived south of town, and to get to the church, we had to go straight north, right? Like, go up Line Avenue and get there. I had friends that chided me. Not jokingly, they got onto me, how dare you let your wife drive in the daylight hours up Lyon Avenue, it's just not safe. The reason they said that, they wouldn't acknowledge it, but I'll just tell you, I know why, is because that section had people of different skin colors and crime was prevalent there and how dare I let her travel through there. So there's lots of reasons why we may avoid a section. That's the kind of relationship or lack thereof that the Samaritans and the Jews had. Here's the amazing thing. It's a terrible day. Stephen has been killed. They're being persecuted. Saul is ravaging. I can see him spewing hatred out of his mouth. He's trying to arrest them. And they say, we've got to scatter and get out of here. 
But the Holy Spirit in that moment helped them begin to fulfill Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Because until that day, the gospel had not left Jerusalem. That's why I called the sermon title, which is a strange title, I get it. The gospel leaves Jerusalem. Because if we're not careful, we keep the gospel near and tight to us and where we feel safe. And we don't take it where it might be scary or negative out there. Why did the gospel get to where it was supposed to go? Because the Holy Spirit used a moment that was less than desirable to fan the flame of sharing the gospel with those around them. Here's my question for you. When you face a difficult moment or situation in your life, do you allow the Holy Spirit to continue to work in your life? See, the followers of Jesus could have said, it's a bad day. Like, I'm just getting out of Dodge. I'm running for my life. I don't have time to talk about Jesus. I got to find safety. I'm running for the hills. But Philip and these other followers of Jesus didn't do that. They continue to follow the Holy Spirit even on their most difficult day. My question is, are you and I doing that same thing? So, the main character in this text in chapter 8 is Philip. We see him introduced in verse 5. And we see the story of what he does. Well, yeah, verse 5 and through verse 8. We see that Philip is reintroduced. Philip had been introduced earlier in chapter 6. In chapter 6, I believe it's verse 5. The, the, the Jew, Jerusalem church needed to uh, identify seven men that would serve the, the, the Hellenists or Greek widows and serve them food. They were the prototype of the deacons. And Philip was one of those men. And he's, he's described in Acts chapter 6 verse 5. And now we pick the story up and he's doing much more than just deacon work. He's now preaching the gospel. In verse 5 it says, he went to Samaria and as he did, he proclaimed to them the Christ. It is very evident to me that the Holy Spirit is leading Philip's life. I said that would be a pattern we would see in this text. And in this scenario, I know that the Holy Spirit is leading Philip for various reasons. One, he didn't avoid Samaria. He didn't go, I'm getting out of here, I'm heading north, I'm getting to Galilee as quick as I can. I, like, I hear it's nice at the sea there, I'm going to hang out and fish while I'm there. No, he went to Samaria, and for him to go to Samaria... The very place that the disciples themselves, when they were with Jesus, tried to avoid like the plague, Philip went there. And then he didn't avoid the despised Samaritans. We see over and over again that the Samaritans and the Jews simply did not associate, they did not talk, they did not do anything together. And so when Jesus one day is at the well, do you remember him talking to the Samaritan woman? And his disciples came back and they were aghast that Jesus was talking to someone. Number one, it was a Samaritan, or maybe I should flip it. Number one, it was a woman, and number two, it was a Samaritan. How dare Jesus talk to a Samaritan? They were despised. But Philip had the message of the gospel, and he shared the gospel with the despised Samaritans. And then on top of that, he doesn't just preach condemnation and wrath of God and say, you aren't worshiping God like you should, so you're going to go to hell. No, he preached the good news of Jesus Christ so that people would trust in Jesus as their Savior. He invited the Samaritans into the family of God. The, the, the Holy Spirit is at work in Philip's life. All too often I hear us as a church, I'm not talking about living hope, and I'm talking about the church as a whole, 
we reference Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Like, you're first going to start in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to the uh, Judea, which is your state, and then you're going to go to the next state, which is Samaria, and then you're going to go all throughout the world. Well, in one sense, geographically, that's true, but there's so much more here than just, I'm going to go to the bordering state. It's saying, I'm going to go to the least of these, the ones that I don't care about naturally, and I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to work in my life in such a way that I share the gospel with them. So Philip had a ministry there. Did you see his ministry? It's kind of twofold. First and foremost, it was the ministry of the word. He was preaching what? He was preaching the gospel. He was preaching the Christ. He was pointing to Jesus Christ. And as he did that, he was also doing ministry of the deed. And that the deed that he was doing was bringing healing and restoration. And it wasn't his power. It was the Holy Spirit doing the healing. But he was bringing signs and healings all pointing to Jesus. This grabbed the people's attention. They listened intently. Can you imagine if we were all hanging out here in town somewhere and somebody comes in and there's a bunch of sick people and he walks in and starts talking and all these people start getting healed. And I don't think we're like, ho-hum, this is boring. Like it would grab our attention, right? Like we'd either think it's a hoax, uh, which I would be prone to think, or we're going to think God's doing something pretty cool or, or we're going we're, we're gonna to do something, right? In this situation, they are in tune with Philip. The Holy Spirit was at work, and he was at work in their lives. And then I love verse 8. I alluded to it a moment ago. Because of all of this, it says there was much joy in that city. Here's my question. I know not all of us are part of Living Hope. Some of you are uh, friends and family, and you have your church family, so you could uh, attach your church's name to this as well. I'm just going to use it in the context of Living Hope, okay? Could the same thing be said of us? That there's great joy in this city because of us, because of you individually. Could the same thing be said that there's great joy in the city because of living hope and the ministry that takes place here? Do we bring joy to our city or do we bring headaches to our city? Do we love the people who make up this city and do we point them to Jesus or do we act like we despise them? You're like, Alan, I don't despise anybody. What I'm saying is, whenever we see sin, do we call out sin or do we call out the person? If we're not careful, we begin to identify sin in such a way that we then begin to point fingers at a person and we make them feel just down, downright low. If I can't even speak, I can't speak clearly right now. But we, 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 we make them feel horrible, right? I'm not saying that we, as Living Hope, i got to back up and say this. I'm not saying this is rampant, but I'm saying if we're not careful, that's how we come across, all right? So our job is, yes, to point them to Jesus. Our job, pointing them to Jesus, means pointing out their sin, yes. But what we want to say is, God can still forgive you of your sin. The truth of the matter is, I was on the phone with somebody this week, and they said, I just don't feel worthy of God's forgiveness. And I said, you're not, and neither am I. None of us are worthy. So that person I'm talking to is not less worthy than I am. That's what I'm trying to communicate that I did a poor job of a moment ago. Like we want to preach the gospel and bring the good news, the facts about who Jesus is, and yet that that would bring joy to people as they trust in him as their Lord and Savior. Now look down at verse 9 and following. We have another character coming to the story, and his name is Simon says he's a magician. Like I said a moment ago, he's not a dude pulling a rabbit out of a hat. 
He's not at the local public school doing a, a magic show and like sleight of hands. No, this magic that he's doing is a little more dark than that. This magic that he's doing is along the lines of sorcery and witchcraft. It was a, a spiritual power that's not of the Lord. And so he's doing this, and it's grabbing everybody's attention, and he's identifying himself that he's somebody great. You can see him puff himself up. Look at me, I'm big and bad. And they copy his words. Look at verse 10. It says, this man is the power of God that is called great. But then whenever Philip shows up and the Spirit of God begins to work, they gravitate away from what, what Simon has done, and they begin to trust in the one true God and him alone. And then Philip begins to feel, I mean, sorry, Simon begins to feel a little bit of, 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 of like intimidation and competition here. They're like, I'm going to lose some money along the way. And so what happens is that the Spirit of God continues to work in and through Philip as he preached the gospel, and men and women trust in Jesus as their Savior. Look at, um, look at verse 12. When Philip preached, people believed and they were baptized, both men and women. So what's all of this about? I mean, we saw a baptism a minute ago. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Uh, you're like, I, I believe in Christmas. Like, I know Jesus was born. I, I believe in Easter. I believe that he died and was raised again. I've heard that story. I'm familiar with it. I'm an American. I, I'm a Christian. Well, let me tell you what the real story of Jesus is. It's not just believing in our head. I've heard this used before, and I know it's kind of corny and all of that, but it's still true. I've, I've heard the statement said before that some people, a lot of people, miss heaven, a relationship with God, by six inches. Because that six inches is the difference between, roughly speaking, your head and your heart. Meaning a person intellectually understands and, and believes that Jesus existed, but they haven't trusted him as their Savior. So let me clarify what's going on here. Whenever we come to a point in our life, we may not be able to identify the day on the calendar, we, but, but there's a moment where we realize I am a sinner. Like I am a hopeless. I can do nothing in my own power and my own strength. I am a sinner. I am wretched. I am undeserving of God's love. And all of those things are true. See, our sin, anytime we disobey against God, anytime we rebel against him, anytime we do something he doesn't want us to do or don't do something he does want us to do, then we're calling the shots. We're putting ourselves on the throne of our lives and we're saying no to God. And because of our sin, we are eternally, forever and ever separated from a holy, perfect God. But here's the good news. Like God's plan from the foundation, actually before the foundation of this world, was to send his son Jesus. We sang a moment ago about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God sent his son to live in the flesh and to be tempted as we are in every way that we are and yet was without sin. Like the wages and what we deserve for our sin is death, physically and spiritually and eternally from God. But Jesus took our punishment for us on our behalf. Jesus died on the cross, a death that he didn't deserve. But just as we witnessed with the baptisms, Jesus didn't stay dead in the grave. Three days later, he was raised to life. And if you and I acknowledge that we are sinners, that we need to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus as our Savior, then salvation comes into our lives. 
And then because of that salvation, we obey him in baptism because it's a step of obedience to show the world that I've trusted in Jesus. And the, wa the water here does not wash away the sin. Jesus does. But the water represents what Jesus has already done, and now I stand before you to say I'm a follower of Jesus. So on that day, the Samaritans heard who Jesus was, who they were, that they needed their sins forgiven, and they placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. My question for you is this. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? I'm not saying do you believe in here that Jesus is real. I'm saying have you trusted in him? Turn from your own way. Turn from your own efforts. Turn from your own works and trusted in him alone. And if you have trusted in him, have you followed him in baptism? Yes, we had a baptism today. Yes, we baptized six people. But if six more people say, hey, I need to be baptized, and we talk to you about it, and it's clear that you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, we can have another baptism next Sunday. Like, you need to say yes to Jesus as your Savior, and you need to say yes to him in baptism. A little side note here. You don't want to be like Simon. You see, Simon here, look at, at the text with me. Simon in here says that he himself believed. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized. So we see that Simon believes and is baptized and it's not clearly explicitly said, but the way I read the text, I don't believe it was a genuine salvation because of the words that we're going to read in a moment that Philip shared with Simon. If we're not careful, we can be just like Simon and miss the relationship with God thinking that we're saved and not genuinely being saved. So just keep that in mind as we move along. All right, let's look at verses 14 through 17 real quick. It says that the apostles heard what was happening in Samaria. So they sent Peter and John down to kind of check it out. We saw earlier that people were being saved. We saw earlier that people were being baptized. But now Philip, sorry, Peter and John showed up on the scene beginning in verse 14. And we find, I look at verse 16, that people had been saved, but the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them yet. They had not received the Holy Spirit yet. And so Peter and John went up there, and just like they did at Pentecost and prayed that the Holy Spirit would come, they pray again in Samaria because the gospel has left Jerusalem, gone to a new area, and for emphasis, God miraculously brings the Holy Spirit in this moment. Peter and John pray, and they lay hands on people, and people experience the Holy Spirit in their lives. So here's my question for us. Does that mean that's how it happens today? Like we just baptized some people. Does that mean we need to bring them down here in a minute, and we're going to pray over them that they get the Holy Spirit? No, the pattern that we see in the New Testament in Acts after this occasion and moving forward is that the Holy Spirit always comes at the time of conversion. So why did he not come at the moment of conversion there in Samaria? Lots of different thoughts that could come into our mind, but one of this is, is that, 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 that God is taking this mag, kind of momentum, momental, monumental, there we go, monumental moment to point out that he is in charge. And just as the people were saved in Jerusalem legitimately, these people in Samaria are saved as well. The church was able to say, you're in our family, you're a part of us. And what we have here is not a description, uh, sorry, a prescription for how to live it out, but rather a description of what took place on that day. So, my question for us out of this section of the scripture, verses 14 through 17, is this. Are we like Philip and Peter and John? Are we good, just like they were, with the Holy Spirit falling on our enemies? 
Like if somebody you don't like comes to faith in Jesus, are you able to celebrate with them? I have a friend who's a um, chaplain in Tennessee in one of the prisons up there. And we had six baptisms today. My friend Johnny baptized 35 inmates yesterday. So my question is, are we able to celebrate when an inmate gets baptized? We should, right? Is an inmate any more guilty before God than you and I are guilty before God? Absolutely not. We should be like Philip and Peter and John and happy when the Spirit falls on those that we previously might not have cared for. Or do we do the opposite? Would we rather the Holy Spirit only work among those who look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us? We should be happy when the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans of our day. Let's keep going. Verses 18 and 19. Here's the section that I think makes it clear that, that, that Simon was not legitimately saved. In 18 and 19, it says that when he saw what took place, he saw the power that happened. Verse 19, he says, give me this power. I'll give you money. Would you give me this power? The word power in the Greek doesn't just mean power. It means authority. He wants authority. He wants not the Holy Spirit. He wants the authority to grant the Holy Spirit, which isn't even his authority in the first place. Why does he want the authority? Because he wants notoriety. He wants fame. He wants money. He wants followers. He's pointing to himself. The Holy Spirit never points to anyone but Jesus Christ. If what we're doing points to ourselves, then we're not in the Spirit. We're in the flesh. And so Simon proves that he's not a legitimate follower of Jesus. He says, I want, in verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 18 or 19, he says, I want to be able to lay my hands on anyone, in verse 19, anyone that I lay hands on that they may receive the Holy Spirit. He wasn't interested in the Holy Spirit. He was interested in his own personal gain. You're like, okay, good thing I'm not like Simon. Like, I've never offered the preacher money so that I could get some kind of favor with God. But the reality is if we're not careful, we can act like Simon. If we're not careful as a preacher, I, if I'm not careful, I can preach for attaboys or recognition. All of us can serve in order to advance our influence on the church. Well, if I take this position of leadership, then maybe they'll give me another one. If we're not careful, we'll seek spiritual gifts to promote ourselves. We'll, we'll try to make ourselves look more godly than we really are. Lots of ways that we can be hypocritical. Guys, we cannot allow the Holy Spirit, the, the desire, we, we cannot so-called pursue the Holy Spirit for our manipulation and our gain. Verses 20 through 24. Verses 20 through 24, we see Simon Peter's reply to Simon. Verse 20, he says, may your silver perish with you. Can I tell you how it might sound in common day vernacular? He says, to hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. And the reason I say that is because when he says, may you perish, that word perish carries with it damnation, perdition, destruction, eternity in hell. This is not a mild correction. This is clear. You are out of line and you are headed to hell because you haven't trusted in Jesus as your savior. It's the same word that we find in John three sixteen. You know that verse, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Well, what does that perish mean? It means eternity in hell, right? So he's 
clearly, in my view, not a genuine follower of Jesus. Then he goes on from there, Peter does, and he says, you, in verse 21, have neither part nor lot, and it carries with it this idea of an inheritance. You have no inheritance, you have no right standing in the kingdom of God. He says, your heart is in the wrong place, there at the end of verse 21. And then it's interesting, Peter says, boy, you better repent. He says, you better repent of your sins, pray to God that if possible, not meaning that God can't forgive, but he's saying if possible that you actually see that you need to repent, that when you repent that God will forgive you, please pray that your sins would be forgiven. And then we see in verse 24, Simon's reaction. Simon doesn't go, you're right, I better pray. He goes, okay, then would you pray for me because I don't want any of this bad stuff happening to me. He doesn't see his need to repent of his sin it's interesting because the story kind of ends with a cliffhanger verse 24 after peter says repent of your sins simon says no thank you would you pray for me i don't want any of the bad stuff to happen to me and that's the end of the story like does simon get saved does he not get saved we don't know why is the rest of the story not there because that's not what the story of the gospel is about the story of the gospel is the truth of his word and are you and i going to respond to it it's not all that important today, whether Simon responded or not, because he can't change his decision now, whatever that decision was. It's calling us to see our need to repent of our sins. And so will we be like Simon and say, no, I don't want bad stuff to happen to me, so maybe somebody else will pray for me? Or are we going to see our need to turn from our sins? So my question is, what about you? Are you more concerned about what you want or about what the Holy Spirit wants? Are you a genuine believer or are you a false believer? I call you today to repent, believe, and be baptized. And then I love verse 25. It's a summary verse. It carries on what's been happening. As the people were scattered, they preached the gospel. After Peter and John did their thing in Samaria, they went back to Jerusalem. And verse 25 says, now when they had testified, they spoke the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. And as they did, what were Peter and John doing? preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to preach and proclaim the name of Jesus. That's not the sole responsibility of the pastor or the youth pastor or the deacons or the elders or the missionaries or the whatever, not the evangelists, not the Billy Grahams. It's the task of the church and the church is made up of the followers of Jesus Christ. We must go preach Jesus. So what are you going to do for the rest of the day? You're like, dude, I'm going to the college lunch. I'm going to the membership lunch. Or like one of my friends that works on staff with me, she and her family have a lunch appointment at like 11.42, so I got to get done here in a second so she can get to the lunch. I don't know where you're going, but wherever you're going, will you take Jesus with you? Wherever you go, will you preach and proclaim the name of Jesus? My boys and I were at this fancy restaurant in town. I don't know how often you get to go there. McDonald's. And we were sitting there eating. A guy was sitting over away from us. He wasn't overly old, but he looked like he was probably in his retirement years. And, and he's, and that's, by the way, I'm 50, so that's all the younger all the time. And so I'm watching him. He has a pleasant appearance to him. He's smiling at us and stuff like that. He gets done eating. And he's got a bag of uh, stuff. Oh, by the way, boys, I didn't call your names out. I realize they sometimes want to say I owe them money when I mention their names. But I didn't say their names, right? <laughs> So um, the guy walks over, he's got his McDonald's bag with him, right? And he goes, hey, could I get, and I thought he was like going to give us like his leftover food. I'm like, no, for real, we don't need your leftover food. He goes, hey, could I give you a, a Bible marker? 
like a bookmark. And so on the bookmark, which we all took, was like some promises from God's word, including some scripture. It was a good, solid thing, right? And then he just interacted with us. Like that was his way, which was beautiful to interact with somebody. He didn't know if I was a pastor. He didn't know if I was a believer in Jesus or not. But he came over, and he didn't preach the gospel to us, but he gave us something we could take home that would, right? So I'm not saying that's what you have to do. I'm not saying, all right, everybody go to McDonald's after church today, have you some bookmarks, stop everybody in line, give them a bookmark. After he got done with us, I don't know what happened, but I was like kind of in favor of what took place next. The boys saw it too, I don't know. But he walks over to the worker that's cleaning the trash. Dude pulls out his wallet, starts taking out money. I'm like, I like the bookmark, but money would be good too, right? <laughs> I don't know what he said to the guy, but I do know this. This man clearly loves Jesus, and he looks intentionally for opportunities to tell other, others about him. See, this man doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He goes to Samaria, McDonald's, and talks about Jesus. What's our Jerusalem. It could be lots of things, but we'll just make it simple. Jerusalem could be these four walls. Are we going to let the gospel leave these four walls, or are we just going to come here and talk about Jesus with our church family? That's great. Don't get me wrong. Like, Let's talk to our church family. But guys, we weren't made to only gather. We were made to gather so we can scatter. Uh, I bit my tongue. So we can scatter. Right? We were made to gather so we can scatter. The church, God's people, from the very beginning, even if you go back to Genesis, we weren't made to cluster. We were made to scatter. What happened at the, power, the Tower of Babel? They were supposed to scatter and fill the earth. They weren't doing it. God said, come on with me. You're going to go. Guys, we were made to tell others about Jesus, which necessitates us scattering the joy, the excitement of this place, being with other church members, singing the praises of God, challenging each other, holding each other accountable, preaching the gospel, teaching the word, studying the word is all vital, not so that we then hold it to ourselves, but so that we then go out and live it, which involves scattering. So that's why I've got kind of this bottom line or it's actually at the top of your outline. You're like, dude, when are you going to hit that? We haven't hit it yet. Well, I've got a whole bunch of sermon to preach. No, that's actually the bottom of what I want to share. Put it on the screen. It says this. We are to scatter. We are to scatter everywhere and tell everyone, even the Samaritans, even the Eagles fans, we are to tell the gospel to everyone. And as we teach and preach, we trust God with the results. Guys, can I just shoot straight with you? You're like, you're a pastor, you better. I do shoot straight with you every, but let me just share something with you. The challenge that we as pastors experience, one of them is this. We preach a message, we get done, we don't see a visible response, we go home and we can be a form of depressed on Sundays headed into Mondays because we go, oh man, I botched that. I didn't say this, I meant to say that. I said something stupid, I bit my tongue when I was trying to say something really good. All of, it just went downhill, right? But guys, I'm not called 
to make people trust in Jesus, I am called to be faithful to preach the gospel and to trust God with the results. You likewise are not called to say, at the end of the week, you better have 10 names on the roster of people that are going to heaven and you've baptized this week or you're not a good disciple. You could faithfully share the gospel every day of the year and not knowingly know of a person that says yes to Jesus, but if you faithfully, truthfully share the gospel, you have done what God's called you to do. But we are called to scatter and tell everyone, everywhere, the good news of Jesus while trusting the Holy Spirit to do his work. So here's some four challenges along those lines, and then I'm done. Guys, let's move out of Jerusalem. Let's move out of Jerusalem. Are we willing to take the gospel to hard and difficult places? It's time that we stop hanging out exclusively with those who think, act, and vote like we do. I'm going to say something scandalous. And some of you honestly may not think it's all that true, but it is. There are faithful Christians that vote Republican. There are faithful Christians that vote Democrat. There are faithful Christians that vote somewhere in between. I'm saying we have to get out of our echo chamber and listen to each other and love one another and do life together. Don't get me wrong. I do have some views on which political party might be closer to some of the truths of God's word, but I'm saying neither one have exclusivity to the correct stance. Anyway, I didn't mean to go down that route, but I'm saying let's move out of Jerusalem. Number two, let's move beyond gathering. I've talked about this. Are we intentionally scattering to tell others? While it's good and right for us to gather, we must scatter to share our faith. All throughout scripture we see that let's stop living in our holy huddle. I found this quote in, 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 a, in a commentary this week. Let's gossip the gospel wherever we go. I love it. Let's gossip the gospel. Obviously, gossip usually has a negative connotation. It's just saying, talk about the gospel everywhere you go. Third thing, let's move beyond being comfortable in our conversations. What I mean by that is we like to sit down and talk about the weather. We like to sit down and talk about sports. Football's about to kick off. We like to talk about the things that are comfortable. Let's move beyond that and let's talk about spiritual matters as well and tell others and evangelize people for Jesus Christ. And then the last thing, let's move beyond trying to manipulate and control the Spirit. Let's trust Him to do His work. Guys and gals, we've got to scatter. We've got to preach the gospel. We've got to trust the Holy Spirit to do His work. And then we get to celebrate being faithful and seeing fruit along the way. I'm going to lead us in prayer. After the end of the prayer, we're going to stand, we're going to sing a couple songs together. It's a chance for us to reflect on the things we've witnessed and, and done today as we've worshiped the Lord together. It's a chance for us to commit ourselves to walk out this door and to do some of the things that God's Word has challenged us to do. I ask you to not transition and begin to think about what's next, unless that what's next is how do I live out my faith based on what we've done today in this room. It's time for us to leave Jerusalem and share the gospel wherever we go. As we begin to sing, there's going to be some plates that are passed. That's the offering place. If you're a guest, we definitely don't expect you to put anything in there unless you filled out the connection card, which would be great for you to drop that there. If you did come prepared to give, then that's there. You can also use the connection card to put any spiritual decisions on it and things like that. Then I'll be up front. If you want to come and pray with me, I'd love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. The altar's open for you to pray. All of those things, wherever God leads you in this moment, please say yes to him. Let's pray together.